who wanted to kick that field goal? That is a great question. Just here, you spend a little time on Willie Nelson's tour bus. A little smoky on there, huh? Go Bears. Uh, Burt Reynolds, or was it uh, Turd Ferguson was holding you at some point? <laughs> Turd Ferguson, that has been the name of the week. Friday edition of PFT Live. No Turd Ferguson appearances today. Although, you never know when the name may be mentioned. Peter King's name mentioned now because he is with me for the next two hours to talk NFL, Jeopardy, Aaron Rodgers, Turd Ferguson, Willie Nelson's tour bus, etc. Let me say this about Aaron Rodgers. I've been watching Jeopardy all week long. He's gotten better and better as the week has unfolded. And he's got another full week to go. And I know it was just two days of his life where he did this, but he's really settled in. And we're seeing a transition from Aaron Rodgers pretending to be Alex Trebek to Aaron Rodgers kind of becoming his own self, his own voice, his own persona as the host of Jeopardy. I like it so far, Peter. How about you? Yeah, I've watched it too, Mike. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, who wanted to kick that field goal? That question, you could tell, caught Aaron Rodgers by surprise. Okay. And when it caught him by surprise, you know, he had this little pause or whatever, but he sort of made up for it in the uh, clip that Jeopardy released afterwards of him, you know, joking around with the departed ex-champion saying, man, that was a great one. Thank you for that or, or something like that. But Mike, I think this is, if you talk to people who know Aaron Rodgers well or who've been in his company he is this sort of droll sense of humor, very clever, extremely bright, you know, 1,500 on the SATs guy. And to me, I, I think that is coming through this week. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see starting Monday, week two, by the end of next week, how much different he may be as he does start to make this into his personality as the host of Jeopardy. And I think he's done a great job. I really do. And Peter, I also have thought a lot this week about how direct and open he is about his ambition to be the permanent host. Usually people are very muted about their aspirations because if you're muted, then you're never perceived as a failure. But the other day it occurred to me, Michael Strahan was never muted about his aspiration to replace Regis Philbin. And guess what? He replaced Regis Philbin. Mm -hmm. I think football players who are far more linear and there's little subtlety and nuance, what they want, they go get. And they've been successful their whole lives saying, this is what I want. I'm going to go get it. They have no qualms about putting themselves out there saying, this is what I want and I'm going to go get it. And I feel like through sheer force of personality, they do a pretty good job of getting what they want. Well, look, you know, Strahan, you know, Mike, it, when I worked for Sports Illustrated, I would say this started maybe in his second or third year. I bet I went out and did about 10 appearances, uh, including appearances at Super Bowls, you know, sort of playing Strahan's foil, doing a Q&A in front of a corporate gig or something like that. And... I could not believe how sort of clever and fast he was. You know, there's something about uh, being a clever person. You can be clever, but sometimes clever people are clever in kind of a quiet way. Strahan always was sort of that out front, 
uh, you know, I can be as good as anybody at anything kind of deal. And Aaron Rodgers, I think, is the exact same way. I remember sitting with him uh, 2018, I think, before the first column I ever wrote for NBC. And I spent, I don't know, 50 minutes with him out at that golf tournament in Vegas. And the number of different topics that we talked about, you know, that was the year he went out on Shark Week and went downstairs and said hello to a shark, you know. And he was so good on so many things that you just say to yourself, you know, this guy, all of these guys, I don't mean this in a TV is easy way because it isn't. All of them can go sit in a booth somewhere and do games. We know that. But I think guys like Strahan and Rogers don't want to put themselves in that little box, in the little football box. I think they want to go out into the larger world and see if they can conquer the things that Alex Trebek has done or, or Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or whatever. So, And by the way, I think it's only a matter of time before a football player is a late-night host. I really do. And I wouldn't put it past Aaron Rodgers. He wouldn't be bad at it. Well, and Michael Strahan at least used the platform on Fox NFL Sunday as the transition to the morning TV circuit. Rodgers has no interest, and he's said multiple times he's got no interest in NFL broadcasting. You can see he's got larger aspirations, and regardless of whether or not he becomes the permanent host of Jeopardy. I think he is putting together enough evidence to suggest that he could do something in non-sports TV that would give him a significant platform, a significant voice, and he would make a hell of a lot more money than he's already made on top of it. And it's funny, you know, I'm sitting here thinking we're three weeks from the day that we will be reacting to round one of the draft. And we first became introduced to Aaron Rodgers 16 years ago as he sat in that green room and waited and waited and waited as the fresh-faced kid out of Berkeley who wanted to be the first overall pick to the 49ers and plummeted into the 20s before he was picked by the Green Bay Packers. How far he's come and how much he's changed and how much he's grown and what he has become beyond football now it's just an amazing ride and we'll see how it all continues to play out for Aaron Rodgers and in two weeks and six days we'll see how it plays out for this year's crop of first rounders Peter isn't it amazing to think that we are right it it just it doesn't feel like we're as close to the draft as we are because this year with no combine with now we didn't have private workouts last year and everything got turned upside down with the pandemic but this year feels like it's even more impacted by the pandemic than last year was even as that cloud seems to be dissipating as it relates to how the pandemic is affecting us on a day in and day out basis well mike you know i i keep saying to people you're never going to get john schneider the seattle seahawks or howie roseman uh, of the Philadelphia Eagles to admit that they are uh, one of the reasons that they were okay with either trading out or trading down in this year's draft is because they view this year's draft as a massive bit of uncertainty, okay? Because no scouts at games last year, so many opt-outs of really good players. Think about this. The two top tackles in this draft 
consensus, you know, top tackles. Sewell from Oregon, Slater from uh, Northwestern. They have not played a football game in 400 days. And, you know, there's going to, both those guys most likely will be picked in the top 12 or 13 picks. So, and I'm not questioning their ability. I think they're both obviously really good. But let's be honest about what is missing this year. The ability to look at players the way you have traditionally. Many of them didn't play in 2020. None of them were scouted the same in 2020 as in any year before. There's no scouting combine. There's no individual workouts at your facility. Nothing. So there's a lot of dubious people in the NFL right now. And why do you think that the Philadelphia Eagles, for instance, have loaded up on the first round in 2021? Because even though maybe right now the the experts say the crop might not be as good, well, you're going to know that crop a lot better and be able to make your picks a lot more confidently next year than you are this year. Yeah, that crop is always a crapshoot when it's time to draft, and it's even more of one this year, just like last year, but even more this year, because last year there was limited information in the run-up to the draft, but full information from the prior football season. This year, limited information from the prior football season, limited information in the run-up to the draft, no scouting combine this year, unlike last year. It really is even more of a shot in the dark with some of these prospects, and you have to trust your scouting department to find a way to give you some basis to believe that a guy is going to thrive at the next level when we know that for every guy there's a ceiling somewhere between whatever he has done in college and the Pro Football Hall of Fame and it's impossible to figure out where that ceiling is that is the biggest challenge in scouting and that is the thing that makes all the time and effort and money that's spent it at times feel meaningless because you just don't know Peter how that guy is going to respond the first time he faces NFL caliber competition. Is he going to win or is it going to beat him? And is he just going to be relegated at best to career backup status? And that's the one thing that will constantly elude these scouts and these folks who think that there's some magical formula out there. There isn't because you don't know what that guy's going to do until he gets, for lack of a better phrase, hit in the face by a grown man. Sometimes you rise up to that challenge and sometimes you don't. And you don't know what that guy is going to do until he's in that situation. Well, Mike, all you have to do is look at the second pick in this draft. Look at Zach Wilson, the quarterback at Brigham Young. I've said it before on this show. One year ago today, Zach Wilson was in a three-man competition for the starting quarterback job at BYU in a totally fractured offseason. Because BYU, for many weeks, could not do the workouts with spring football at its own facility because of COVID. So Zach Wilson did not win this job last year until August. And then you look at what Zach Wilson did during the season. Brigham Young had an excellent schedule last year going into the year. But then all the games got canceled. And the athletic director, Tom Homo, had to invent a new schedule out of whole cloth. So instead of playing, you know, the upper Division One teams, he's scrambling to, to get teams to play like Troy. And, and so that is what happened. And so now you've got to make a judgment on Zach Wilson. 
He wins the job in August. He's the quarterback starting in September against uh, a significantly lesser uh, set of competition. And so now you have to make a judgment. If you're Joe Douglas and you're, uh, you're Mike LaFleur, the offensive coordinator of the Jets and Robert Sala, you have to make this judgment based on stuff that you wish you could see more. You wish that you could hang out in your facility and put uh, Zach Wilson up on the board and interact with him and everything. You can't do it. And I'm not saying that Zach Wilson isn't going to make it. I like Zach Wilson. I like him a lot. But there is just so many question marks, and he exemplifies those question marks in this year's draft. That schedule that BYU played this year, at one point Sims and I ran through it, and there was at least one school on there that my reaction was, what the hell is that school? I've never heard of that school in my 55 years of existence. That's the kind of schedule that BYU had to slap together, and that's the conundrum that the Jets face, although everything seems like the Jets are locked on to Zach Wilson. There's been no effort this week by the Jets, publicly or privately, to push back against the idea that now that Sam Darnold has been traded, Zach Wilson is is the guy. There was the question this week posed to Joe Douglas about Steve Young, the former BYU quarterback, suggesting Wilson is the guy, and Douglas kind of joked about it. And you could just see, Peter, the difference between the general managers who are playing poker and those who are in position to count their chips. Douglas has no reason to pretend that his hand is anything other than what it is because after Trevor Lawrence to the Jaguars, and we'll talk about him in a minute, Douglas controls the board. He doesn't have to act like he may take someone other than Zach Wilson. And I know there are people who think that 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 the Jets may not take Zach Wilson, but you've got you've to do something to push back against the growing notion in your fan base, Peter, that Zach Wilson isn't the guy if he isn't the guy because folks are going to be in for a shock in 20 days if the name is anything other than Zach Wilson. Here's the thing. Uh, I think, you know, I it, what is the, I just looked at the Brigham Young schedule, Mike. Was it North Alabama? Was it Texas San Antonio? Was it Texas That State? one. <laughs> it was Texas San Antonio. Texas UTSA. State. I saw UTSA okay, and yeah. I was like, what the hell is that? Is that a bank somewhere? <laughs> hey, look, I think... I think the reason why Joe Douglas, and look, Mike, I reported whatever three weeks ago, whenever that trade was made, that the 49ers had uh, checked with the Jets at number two uh, and were told, I believe, in no uncertain terms that we're not moving this pick. I think here's how it went for the Jets this offseason, Mike. Robert Sala gets hired. And I believe he tells Joe Douglas some words to this effect. I like Sam Darnold. Uh, Mike LaFleur, my offensive coordinator, likes Sam Darnold. And if you want to keep him, it's absolutely fine with us. We're, we're, we're happy to go, you know, to go into battle with, with Sam Darnold. But they said, okay, look, let's just study all these guys. Let's study what happens during the offseason and, and look at all the games of all the quarterbacks and then make a decision. And they made their decision that there was a quarterback worth taking it to after Trevor Lawrence because they assumed all along that Jacksonville was taking Trevor Lawrence. 
And that quarterback was Zach Wilson. Now, I don't know if inside that team it was unanimous, but I do know that that is the guy uh, that clearly uh, is liked by most of the people inside the Jets, including Joe Douglas. And so no matter what, and, and I believe, look, I think Steve Young wants to see Zach Wilson go to the 49ers, but, you know, that's not going to happen. You know, Zach Wilson is going to go to the Jets. He's going to be picked number two. And then the Jets, you know, Mike, yesterday, a very little piece of news. Jets are interested in Brian Hoyer as their backup. And, and I have this question, and I'd love to hear your thought. Why not Alex, Wilson, Alex Smith? Why not Alex Smith for the backup? And then I found out that Alex Smith's price tag might be a little bit too uh, heavy to be a tutor uh, to Zach Wilson. So I think that's why Zach Wilson um, is going to have Brian Hoyer or looks likely to have Brian Hoyer as his uh, put your arm around the shoulder kid. I'm playing Josh McCown. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And they're going to need someone like that if they want to get Zach Wilson ready to go right out of the gates week one. And another thing Joe Douglas said, and we've seen this dynamic play out this year because there are no private workouts. Everything is public at these pro days, multiple pro days for the high-end quarterbacks. So there are multiple opportunities for coaches and GMs to go watch them throw. Douglas said, you don't ever take a quarterback until you stand next to him and watch him throw a football or as in the case of Urban Meyer, hear the football come out of his hands. And that to me, Peter, a week or two ago when Urban Meyer didn't go to the BYU Pro Day. It was two weeks ago. The days are really blending together and they continue to do so. But when Meyer didn't go, that to me made it ink, underlined, highlighted Trevor Lawrence won and jets on the clock for Zach Wilson. And again, it it just feels like that's the way it's going. And if they're going in any other direction, there will be shock on the cover and back page and everywhere else of the New York tabloids in three weeks because it's all setting up Zach Wilson and their PR sensibilities will be completely off base if they don't do something between now and then to make people think it's someone else because I'd be sh- I'd be beyond shocked at this point if it's not Zach Wilson. I, I think we can we can for as much as we can put Lawrence in ink at one, we can put Wilson in ink at two. I think so too, Mike. I think. You know what's interesting about this draft? I do think there's going to be some mystery. I I think that the 49ers at three, it looks like Mac Jones, but I think it could be any one of those three guys, truly. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be. Um, And then the interesting thing to me at four is I don't think anybody knows right now what Atlanta is going to do. So look, Many years, we have a very good idea who's going one, two, maybe even three. But what I like this year is that, okay, we've had our fun with one and two. And now let's turn to the next stories, which I think are going to be just as fun. Because when I look at this draft, Mike, as a draft that possibly uh, could could be the first time in history that four quarterbacks get picked number one, I, I'm, I'm writing about this for Monday. What has happened, it really, when you think about it, what has happened to make all of this happen, to push these quarterbacks ahead of everybody else in this draft, even though 
there are a lot of everybody else's uh, who are, are more highly rated on the boards of people like Mel Kuyper and and you know and Todd McShay and Dan Jeremiah and in NFL draft rooms around the league too. So to me, I, I think this is a really fun draft, an absolutely unique draft, and there is going to be some mystery on draft night. It was 1999 when we saw Tim Couch to the Browns, Donovan McNabb to the Eagles, Achilles Smith to the Bengals, one, two, three, and there's a chance it'll be one, two, three, four. Peter, here's my theory, and it's very simple. Quarterback, obviously, the most important position on a football team, and it gets more and more important every year. And now that we are seeing that great quarterbacks who are fully committed to their craft and the lifestyle, the Tom Brady effect, you don't have a right. great quarterback if you get one for five years. You don't have him for 10 years. You don't have him for 15 years. You potentially have him for 20 years. You have solved the most important position on the field for up to two decades if you roll the dice and get a seven on those occasions when the seven is good. Sometimes the seven is bad. I never quite understand it. That's why I don't play craps. But the point is, you get lucky with that pick and you get that guy who, number one, becomes a franchise quarterback, and number two, can stay healthy and motivated and focused and grow into the TB12 mindset, you're golden. You've got lifetime employment as a GM and a head coach if you get that guy. I think that's why we're seeing the cluster this year of quarterbacks at the top. Mike, look, let's, let's just, let's, for instance, look at Matt Ryan right now. You know, Matt Ryan will play this year at age 36. And Matt Ryan obviously has been an Atlanta Falcon since 2008. I was there on the night of the draft and, and you still had people uh, walking around Atlanta in Michael Vick jerseys and saying, in essence, that Matt Ryan will never be accepted here. Well, <laughs> you know, in the last 13 years, Matt Ryan has started all but three games for the Atlanta Falcons. And so... I look at Matt Ryan and I just say, you know, it's one thing if Matt Ryan had been showing signs of significant decline, okay, but he, but he hasn't. And so my question is, if I am the Atlanta Falcons, you know, I, I wonder why everyone on the outside world is giving us a quarterback because this quarterback who says... He wants to play into his 40s. I mean, you've got the position solved for the next four or five years. Now, it could be, could be that they don't want to pay Matt Ryan $40 million or whatever. He's got a huge contract, as you know. And maybe they don't want to pay him that. But the fact is, you know, if the cap starting in 2023 starts to go up in 2024 and 25, it goes up. That's going to be a manageable salary to be able to handle. And so I guess what I'm saying, Mike, is if I'm the Atlanta Falcons, I'm either trading that pick or I'm not taking a quarterback. Yeah, uh, Matt Ryan signed for two more years beyond 2021 with some huge cap numbers. But, you know, you think back to 2008, Thomas Dimitrov just getting started as GM, Mike Smith getting started as head coach. In that 13 years, until this year when it bottomed out and Arthur Blank decided to change out both jobs, you had Dimitrov, consistently the GM, two coaches in that stretch when 
many of the teams have been through three or four or more, having that quarterback and having that stability is what cements you over the long haul. And that may be why they're thinking about it. That's why we're hearing these reports of Arthur Smith wanting to stick with Matt Ryan. Terry Fontenot wanted to go with the quarterback because if you unlock that young franchise quarterback, you're laying the foundation for a decade or longer of consistent contention, not necessarily Super Bowls, but good enough that there's not going to be a house cleaning, that all you have to do is put the team around him. And that that's not easy to do, but it's a lot easier than finding the franchise quarterback. And I just think these opportunities to get a franchise quarterback are so few and far between, Peter, that you got to take them when they come. And the one thing that I think a lot of people have lost sight of as it relates to what the Falcons will do, what they're going to do is whatever Arthur Blank wants them to do. At the end of the day, he'll make it known what his preference is most likely via Rich McKay, who will make it known to Terry Fontenot and Arthur Smith what the guy who owns the team wants with that very high-profile pick, and that's what they'll do. I agree, Mike, but I, I also think that when, when Thomas Dimitrov was there, he obviously had to answer to Arthur Blank, but it was Thomas Dimitrov's idea to go up for Julio Jones for that passel of draft choices uh, in 2000, whatever, 10 or 11. And, and although clearly Arthur Blank has to sign off on these things, I wouldn't be shocked if Arthur Blank is sidling up to, you know, his new general manager, uh, Terry Fontenot, and basically saying, hey, listen, you know, make sure you think about the quarterback. Make sure you think about you know, we're not going to be in position to get one of these guys again and all that stuff. But I doubt sincerely that Arthur Blank is telling Terry Fontenot, we're taking a quarterback. I doubt he's telling Arthur Smith, we're taking a quarterback. I I just don't think he operates his team that way. Now, I'm sure he's not going to be shy with his opinion. He never is. But I do think uh, that this is going to be a decision that at the end of the day is going to be made by the general manager and the coach. But as you say, Mike, if, if, if Arthur Blank totally disapproves of it, there could be a, a significant discussion to be had. One of the things I always say, the beauty of being a billionaire, you never have to come out and say what you'll want. You just make your opinion known. And, and smart people who work for you will understand what's what that what that means and what they should do if they would hey, like you know to what Mike Mike I'm glad Ozzie Newsom didn't do that in 19 I'm glad Ozzie Newsom didn't do that in 1996 because remember in 1996 the Ravens are new to Baltimore and uh and and so obviously you've got Ozzie Newsom running his first draft ever and Art Modell the owner of the team says Hey, I really want Lawrence Phillips. We need to fill up our stadium. We need we need offense. We need offense here. I want Lawrence Phillips. And and uh, hey, look at the end of the day, you know, Ozzie Newsom wasn't positive that this might not at some point cost him his job, but Ozzie Newsom said, "No, we're taking Jonathan Ogden." And then with our second pick in the first round, we're not moving up <coughs> to go get a big offensive weapon. With our second pick, if he's there, we're taking Ray Lewis. So, I mean, obviously, it's one of the best draft rounds. Maybe it's not quite Gale Sayers and Dick Butkus for the Bears in the 60s in the same first round, but that is one heck of a first round. And so I I really think that 
if Arthur Blank hired Terry Fontenot, and if he hired Arthur Smith, he hired him because he has faith in them to take the Atlanta Falcons to a Super Bowl. In my opinion, I don't think the first big matter of business for the organization, that he's going to say, hey, guys, stand back. We're taking whoever it is, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones. It's clear that Shad Khan hired Urban Meyer to fill the stadium in Jacksonville, and it feels like and has for months, ever since the Jaguars emerged, congratulations, as the worst team in football last year with the rights to Trevor Lawrence, that Lawrence is the guy. There was some Trevor Lawrence news yesterday. Coincidentally or not, his wedding is this weekend, so he won't be going to Indianapolis to get his surgically repaired non-throwing shoulder examined. Reportedly, coming from his agent, undoubtedly, everything is going well, so we can believe that completely and entirely because agents, along with coaches and GMs, never tell anything other than the absolute unvarnished truth. They may as well walk around attached to a polygraph machine. Everything you say can be taken to the bank uh, or, or not. Um, look, I'm not concerned about Trevor Lawrence's left shoulder, Peter. I, I, he'll be fine. He'll be good to go. The Jaguars are going to take him. Um, but, you know, the, the question of his rookie season and how effective he will be, th- there is a connection there to whether he's ready to go right out of the gates when they open training camp. And, and I remember when the timeline was first announced after the, the procedure, it was a little fuzzy as to whether or not he's going to be 100% right. when it's time to, to start practicing. But that's not going to dissuade the Jaguars. For as much of an upset as it would be for the Jets to not take Zach Wilson, multiply that by 1,000, that's the upset it would be for the Jaguars to not take Trevor Lawrence at this point. No, they're taking Trevor Lawrence. And uh, look, I, I've already got the invitation from Urban Meyer to come and listen to at training camp to come and listen to the ball coming out of Trevor Lawrence's hand because I said to him, does that really matter? Can you really hear something? He says, yeah, yeah. He said, well, you, you come down here and you can hear it too. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold him to that. You can bet my little dispatch out of Jacksonville training camp is, okay, now I'm going to tell you what this really sounds like. And maybe NBC will give me a great microphone or recording device and I'll just hold it up like that to see if we can actually hear anything with the ball coming out of his hand. But look, I think, Mike, I I question right now deep down, you know, obviously Urban Meyer told me that he'd been thinking about this for a year. He'd been thinking about doing this going back to last January. And he wasn't specific about which team, but everybody knows that he and Shad Khan have had a friendship slash cordial relationship. So I am sure that Urban Meyer is watching the Jacksonville Jaguars tumble down and down and down. And after he understands what's going to happen with them having the first pick in the draft, I mean, you know, would he have really gone to Jacksonville if, you know, if, if, if they were going to have like the eighth pick in the draft this year, uh, they weren't going to be able to get a quarterback. They were going to have to think about, you know, scotch taping the quarterback position together and all that. I mean, it's pretty convenient for him that he's able to walk into a situation with a perhaps a generational quarterback, the most cap money of anybody, and an incredibly good draft situation in his first year. 
So I, I, I think there's a pretty good reason why he took this job. Pete Demolitis, who is not producing the show today, but nevertheless is subjecting himself to it, has texted that the current odds for Trevor Lawrence as the number one pick in the draft are minus 10,000. That means, Peter, you'd have to wager $10,000 of your hard-earned after-tax money to win a mere 100 bucks on Trevor Lawrence. And it's probably a safe bet at that. If you want to make 100 bucks, just crack out 10000 and put it on the Jaguars <laughs> taking Trevor Lawrence. And for Zach Wilson at number two, it's minus 2,000. So, uh, again, not as firm as, as Lawrence, but those are the first two. At number three, let's talk about that for a few I'll minutes. I'll actually we take have some that time bet. for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, the 49ers, it was two weeks ago now. Again, the weeks and days continue to blur during this ongoing pandemic, but it was two weeks ago that the 49ers moved from 12 to 3, putting themselves in position to draft a quarterback. We all believe, or at least not all, but many, many, many are saying, many are saying that Mac Jones will be the pick at number three. There was an interesting back and forth earlier this week between Dan Patrick and Nick Saban, the I'm not going to be the Alabama coach, Alabama coach, on the pro day, pro day two, where Mac Jones threw, Kyle Shanahan was there, John Lynch was there, 49ers coach and GM respectively. Here's Saban on whether and to what extent they had a conversation with him about Mac Jones. What did you tell Kyle Shanahan about Mac Jones? He didn't ask me a thing. Didn't ask me a thing. I said hi to him. Uh, John Lynch, too. Um, they did not ask me a thing about him. They didn't ask me a thing. Wow. Maybe they thought they weren't allowed to because, you know, out there on in the pro day floor, which is where I saw him, yeah. you know, I, I think that they – I don't know all their rules, but I think their rule is they're not really allowed to, to talk to me. Yeah, that's not the rule. Coaches and, G, and, and GMs are allowed to talk to college coaches at pro days. Urban Meyer stood next to Dabo Swinney for the entirety of listening to the ball whiz out of the hands of Trevor Lawrence. So I don't know what Nick Saban's doing there. I don't know if he's trying to help cover up or whatever. And just because they didn't talk to him there, even if they didn't talk to him there, they can talk to him whenever they want to talk to him. They can call him whenever they want. One of the things Saban said a couple of years ago in a documentary with Bill Belichick is I'm amazed more college coaches or pro coaches, excuse me, don't call me to find out about the guys who have played for me. So I, the 49ers aren't going to take Mac Jones without doing their full and complete diligence, Peter. So uh, I, I just thought that was kind of odd, but uh, I don't think it means much as to what the 49ers are thinking about doing. The reason I don't think it means anything is that, you know, the 49ers, the one thing they don't want to do is they don't want to show their hand. And so they're not going to glom on to Nick Saban and spend 20 minutes with him at the pro day grilling him. <clears throat> because there are other people around. I mean, what they do, I'm sure, absolutely sure, is, you know, call Nick Saban uh, or, you know, FaceTime or, or, or Zoom with Nick Saban for a half hour or 45 minutes to sort of ask him about it. But I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit naive, and I, I don't mean to suggest that this is what happened. They might have spent four hours talking to Nick Saban at some point or collectively. But Kyle Shanahan, all he wants to do is scout the player, watch him, you know, study him as closely as he can, 
And to do that, all he's got to do is watch whatever, 17 games, however many games he played at Alabama. Watch every snap. I'm sure he's got some questions about it. Hey, on this play, what did you see? Well, he can ask, he can ask Mac Jones that. So without sounding, trying to sound naive, because clearly every head coach has stuff that they can tell, you know, his acquiring coach about him. I don't think it's that important for them to to grill Nick Saban for, for very long. And I certainly don't think they would do it on the floor during his workout. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And really, when we think about the draft that starts in 20 days, the biggest mystery right now is what, what the first mystery is what will the 49ers do? And to a certain extent, there's there's value in milking that if you are the 49ers, because you get a lot of free publicity over the course of the next 20 days as everyone is trying to figure out, is it Mac Jones? Is it Justin Fields? Could it be Trey Lance at number three? And the NFL has to like that too, Peter, because why are we tuning in on Thursday night, first night of the draft, if we know picks one, two, three? Don't need to tune in for the first hour of the draft. We'll, we'll, we'll be there for the Falcons at number four, what are they going to do? So I think the league probably a little bit dismayed that it's so obvious that it's Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson one and two, but not dismayed that we don't know for sure what the 49ers will do. And we definitely don't know what the Falcons are going to do. They may trade out of that spot. They may use that pick. If they use that pick, will they take a quarterback? We simply do not know. I do know this. We've been going for a while here. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we return Friday morning, a very important development in the Deshaun Watson litigation heading to court are the lawyers for the first time what they're trying to do and what i think it means we'll discuss that when pft live continues right after this For the last three weeks, the litigation against Deshaun Watson has largely played out, Peter, in the court of public opinion. It goes to a court of law today. And Rusty Harden, who represents Watson, has been telegraphing this for weeks now. The idea that there will be some sort of a challenge to these 22 lawsuits based upon the fact that 20 of them continue to proceed with the Jane Doe pseudonym. Emergency hearing today aimed at forcing the 20 who have not attached their names to their lawsuits to do so. Now, there are other ways to raise that issue. Those other ways would take more time. I firmly believe that Harden has embarked on this strategy to try to get Tony Busby, who represents all 22 of the individuals, to come to the table and try to get all cases resolved sooner rather than later so Deshaun Watson can be traded, can have some certainty, can clear this problem off of his docket. And and, and I, I need to say this. Anytime I mention the possibility of settlement, I'm not saying make it go away quickly and easily. I'm saying finding a way to take your reckoning, to make things right, but I think there's value in making it happen sooner than later if Watson is ready to do that. But at the same time, I think they're having a hard time getting Tony Busby to the table. This, what's happening in court today, I believe, is a device to force Busby to the table to the extent that any of these 20 women just say, we don't want our names to come out under any circumstances. Here's the issue that I see now, Mike, is, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's April, and as I try to figure out and I try to think about, you know, the, what, 
will happen by September. You would know a lot better than I would. But the one thing I keep thinking is, look at all of, and again, I don't mean to just transition to football immediately, okay? But as we proceed through the offseason, look at how many doors are being closed on uh, the Texans' general manager, Nick Casario, and on Deshaun Watson. Look at all the teams that have already solved their, their quarterback dilemma, let's say, for the year, okay? And now look at what might be available. If Houston, if, say, all of this is solved, maybe if he gets some sort of suspension from the NFL, but if at some point in 2021 he's able to play football, I mean, where's he going to go? What owner wants to take on the onus of Deshaun Watson in this Me Too society. So I think there's still a lot of questions that regardless of what happens to him legally in the next three or four months, what will happen to uh, Deshaun Watson in a gridiron sense in 2021 is a gigantic mystery. But, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers brought in Antonio Brown, even though there's a pending lawsuit against him in Florida for sexual assault and rape. Now it's one victim, not 22. And I think the sheer magnitude changes things for Deshaun Watson. At least two of the individuals who have sued him have spoken to police, and there is a possibility of criminal charges being filed. But if he can find a way, and again, to do it the right way, to properly have his reckoning, to properly compensate and make these individuals believe that they've had their day in court, that they've had some form of justice that is acceptable to them under the circumstances, especially if 20 of them can avoid attaching their names to these lawsuits as part of this process. To the extent that that could be done sooner than later and that they agree as part of it that it's over, that it's finished, that they're not going to talk about it publicly as a practical matter. They wouldn't be able to cooperate with the NFL because the NFL has no subpoena power over these individuals once they've agreed not to talk about it to anyone, which is a legitimate way of resolving situations like this. That is what lays the foundation for Deshaun Watson to to get this behind him in 2021, whatever that means by way of an NFL suspension. And we don't know what the NFL will do. Peter, Ben Roethlisberger was suspended six games, reduced to four in 2010 with two incidents, one of which resulted in a lawsuit. The other resulted in nothing. Now, I still believe that there was some sort of a resolution that was made between Roethlisberger and the alleged victim, but there was no prosecution. There was no lawsuit arising from the incident in Milledgeville, Georgia. Two incidents and Ben Roethlisberger was suspended ultimately four games. 22 incidents now, plus this pattern of behavior that suggests that something's not right. The NFL could easily suspend him multiple games, could suspend him justifiably for the full season by the time it's all said and done. But you don't even get to the point where the NFL is taking up what to do until these cases are resolved. You could otherwise have a situation where one or two seasons are lost to the commissioner exemplist, and then after that, the NFL right. passes its judgment. So there is value in getting these cases resolved now. I believe, I don't know, but I believe Watson would like to do it. And I think Tony Busby, as he represents his clients, understands that there's value in being coy. There's value in being unpredictable because that could drive the price up. And that's how you measure justice in the civil justice system, how much one side pays to the other. And I think today's hearing 
is aimed at forcing Busby to the table because they would like to get this cleared away from a legal standpoint as soon as possible and maybe before the draft and maybe there is a team out there. Maybe there is. If all these cases would be over and resolved to the satisfaction of the 22 women involved and it's done and that's it, maybe there is a team that would make that trade knowing there's a strong possibility there'll be a suspension to be served in 2021, Peter. And that, and then you ask the question, okay, could it be a team that already has made strides with another quarterback? Could it be the Carolina Panthers? And could they, and I don't know whether they have told Sam Darnold directly that we're exercising your, your option for uh, 2022. I, I don't know whether they have or not. It seems like they will. But what would happen if Deshaun Watson suddenly became available? Would the Panthers then basically kind of say, hey, sorry, uh, Sam Darnold, this is the cost of doing business? You know, would the Miami Dolphins get involved? I, I don't think so, but who knows? So there's all of these questions that, that we don't really know until we have some idea of what Deshaun Watson's status is for 2021. And we're not going to know that until, um, you know, the legal wrangling plays out. One last quick point, and we made this earlier in the week, and I just want to reemphasize it here. To the extent that Deshaun Watson continues to follow a strategy that entails hunkering down and fighting, that is the thing that could keep him out of football for multiple years and potentially derail his career entirely. If he's ready to understand that something happened that shouldn't have happened, he needs to find a way to make it right, he puts it behind him, that's when he sets himself up for his redemption. That's what Mike Vick did. Mike Vick finally abandoned the fight in 2007, served his time, came back to the NFL. But you have to have that moment where you pivot away from fight, 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 deny, 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 and accept the fact that you have to acknowledge that something happened, you need to make it right. That's how you lay the foundation for your return to the NFL, whenever that may be. Let's take a break. When we return, when will Julian Edelman return to the NFL? And when he does, how healthy will he be? We'll discuss that when PFT Live continues right after Julian Edelman, the Super Bowl 53 MVP, Super Bowl 53. They all blend together, too. The days, the months, the years, the Super Bowls blend together, especially with the Patriots winning so many of them. Karen Garigian of the Boston Herald reported recently that it's doubtful Edelman will be able to play an entire 2021 season due to a knee injury that drastically limited his availability in 2020. Peter, I, 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 I. Conspiracy, Mike, and I'm sure the graphic is going to come up of me smoking a cigarette and a short sleeve dress shirt. But I, I feel like Edelman wants to get to Tampa Bay with Tommy and Gronk. Although Tom Curran told us yesterday on PFTPM that Edelman is much more of a company guy than Gronk and Brady. But, uh, you know, this knee, uh, apparently an issue, apparently a problem. And it just feels like the Patriots in the process of transitioning away from one of the most important players of the last decade. Well, you know, Mike, he only played 265 snaps last year, didn't play the last two-thirds of the season. Uh, it just feels like, you know, Bill Belichick is never one of these guys who um, is very sentimental about his roster. And to bring back a 35-year-old player who probably is only going to be able to play briefly it's, it, you know, it's football's not a sentimental game. And so I, I would, 
I'd be surprised if he was on the Patriots. I just would. But And I'd also be surprised if he was on Tampa. I mean, at some point, don't you have to say if you're Tampa? You know, we've, we've done a lot of favors for Tom Brady, okay? We gave him his tight end, okay? And we brought in, against a lot of public sentiment, we brought in Antonio Brown, okay? Those things you know, basically cost us money, number one, and could have really backfired on us publicity-wise. Luckily, they didn't. You know, nothing happened with Antonio Brown last year, but who knows what the future holds. And so I guess I look at this and I say, you've gotten your entire team back. You've gotten your entire team back. That's enough. It's enough. It's not time to go out and get and I don't mean to say Edelman's a mascot or anything. He's not. You know, he was a great NFL receiver. But, I mean, enough is enough. I don't see him going to Tampa. But they do have a season ticket waiting list in Tampa again for the first time in a long time, and it's all because of Tom Brady. And they're going to make millions upon millions from having Brady there, and they want a Super Bowl with Brady. And if this is a guy who you just nurse along and unleash in the postseason, maybe he makes a difference. He did on April Fool's Day have one of those. Is it really a joke, or is he trying to tell us something? April Fool's Day gags where he posted a gif of Johnny Depp in one of the many Pirates of the Caribbean movies before saying it was an April Fool's gag, but who knows? Who knows? Take that. I knew that was coming. (laughs) Get that off of there. We're taking a break. Another hour of PFD Live still to come. 